0: I can understand how men should come, by observation and inference, to know a lot about the universe they live in. If, on the other hand, I swallow the scientific cosmology as a whole, then not only can I not fit in Christianity, but I can't even fit in science. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode forty, The Magician's Twin, After Hours with Dr. John G. West. Good morning, everyone. Heights with Jack is your favourite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Andrew, Matt, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. And this season, we've been talking about love, and we worked our way through Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And then we had Ecumenism Month, where we spoke to people from diverse religious backgrounds who all love Lewis. And we now begin Apologetics Month, looking at Lewis's apologetic work. And I wanted to begin this series today by looking at Lewis's attitude towards science and scientism, hence the opening quotation from Lewis's essay, Is Theology Poetry? And I did have a different guest originally lined up to speak on this topic, but I think I've been ghosted, or at least I haven't had any response to any email for a month or so now. So we have a last minute replacement step in to help us guide us through this topic, Dr. John G. West. Dr. West is Vice President and Senior Fellow at the Seattle based Discovery Institute, where he also serves as Managing Director of the Institute's Center for Science and Culture, which he co founded with philosopher of science Stephen Mayer in 1996. His current research examines the impact of science and scientism on public policy and culture. His other areas of expertise include constitutional law, American government and institutions, and religion and politics. Dr. West has been involved in a number of documentaries and books, including Celebrating Middle Earth. The Lord of the Rings as a Defense of Western Civilization, the C.S. Lewis Reader's Encyclopedia, and the book which we'll be talking about today, The Magician's Twin, C.S. Lewis on Science, Scientism, and Society. Dr. West, welcome to Pints with Jack, and thank you for stepping
1: into the breach. Oh, well, thank you for having me step in the breach. I hope I don't step in it uh, or step in (laughs) something, but uh, I'm glad to be here. Any time to talk about C.S. Lewis.
0: Wonderful. Well, I got your book earlier this week, and I've crammed it. <laughs> uh, so I think this is going to be this is going to be a fun conversation because this was definitely moving into an area of Lewis that I hadn't really looked at. Uh, I am tempted to ask you how the weather is in Seattle, but having lived there for two years myself, I know that the answer is naturally cloudy with a touch of rain.
1: Actually, it's beautiful right now. It was raining earlier. I don't it believe It was you. raining <laughs> earlier, but right now it's <laughs> sunny. You could even see natural. Well, anyway, if you people were watching on the video, they could see it's actually sunny.
0: Hmm, I, I think it's a lie, but okay, I'll I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you live in your delusion. Uh, for a drink, since my son's sixth tooth has still yet to appear, uh, although we're recording late in the afternoon, caffeine is what's needed, so I'm mm-hmm. drinking some typhoon tea. Uh, Dr. West, are you drinking anything?
1: I am, but I have to say Jack Lewis would not approve because I'm a teetotaler, so it's apple juice.
0: <laughs> I don't think he would approve, you're right.
1: Appropriate for Washington State. Home of apples.
0: This is true. Although I'm going to say the best apples I've ever eaten are here in Wisconsin.
1: Well, you'd have to say that because you're living in Wisconsin.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I am. And this is where all of my wife's family are. And they will occasionally listen to this. So I have to curry favor. Anyway, cheers.
1: Cheers. So
0: to kick things off, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Well, I really have a sort of mundane background, but I grew up in the Pacific Northwest where, as you do point out, even though it's not raining right now, the Washington Rain Festival is supposed to be from January 1st (laughs) to December 31st. I once had a shirt that said that. So I went to grad school in Southern California, which was a different environment where you step out in December and you get hit with 85 degree weather, uh, and got a PhD in government, uh, was a university professor at Seattle Pacific University for about 12 years, and then have spent a lot of my time, even while I was at the university with Discovery Institute, which you mentioned, uh, where I'm vice president, and I founded this program, sort of notorious program called the Center for Science and Culture, which involves a lot of scientists who think there's evidence of purpose and intelligent design in nature. And so that's Pretty much me. I I dabble in all sorts of things. Have written a number of books, edited a number of collections on everything from my original area of expertise was actually religion and American politics in the early 1800s. And but I've written on Lewis, on uh, Walt Disney, uh, you name it. So
0: yeah, you've been involved with quite a few Inklings-related book projects. How did those come about?
1: Uh, Providence, um, you know, it, it goes back. Actually, I'd say Lewis has a special place in my heart uh, going back to junior high and grade school. In junior high, for those of people who've read Lewis and they've read the Chronicles of Narnia, think of the silver chair and experiment house. <laughs> And the use of bullies and stuff. Well, that was, when I was in junior high, I got a lot of bullying uh, on me. And so the way I escaped, literally, the bullying was the only safe place at the school that I went to was the library, which was ruled by actually an older lady with an iron fist. And so you went there, you were safe. (laughs) So I would go in during lunch, escape from the bullies and read C.S. Lewis and read about Eustace and Jill at Experiment House and and Philip comforted that, you know, Aslan was someone I could rely on. So I have a special place in my heart for C.S. Lewis in helping me through really a terrible time of bullying when I was small. But then, you know, I did, I read everything, you know, that I could get my hands on that he wrote. So he was a great intellectual, you know, spiritual influence on me. And then as far as the particular book projects, uh, probably the you know, I got involved with a group called the C.S. Lewis Institute, which was done at Seattle Pacific University. There's another one on the East Coast, but by an English professor named Michael McDonald and uh, got involved with that. And then while I was in graduate school, I had a friend from graduate school who got a contract with Zondervan to do a Lewis encyclopedia. By this time, I was a young professor. And so then I co-edited with him the C.S. Lewis Readers Encyclopedia uh, with Zondervan. And then, when I did more stuff with, uh, with Discovery Institute, I, I was always interested, Lewis actually got me interested in scientific reductionism and scientific materialism and its impact on society. And so when I had the chance in the early 2010s to do a book, edit a book, The Magician's Twin uh, on Lewis and scientism, I just jumped at the chance. Hmm. And
0: for the rest of this month, we're going to be looking at the various arguments that Lewis puts forward for theism Mm. and for Christianity. But I really thought that we should begin with science, because you can't ever have a conversation with a skeptic about religion without science being brought up. And so I thought digging a little bit deeper into Lewis's thought about science would, would be a really good way of kicking off this series. But before we get too deep into the weeds, we should probably... Define our terms a little bit. We just finished The Four Loves, and in that he says it's far easier to praise or dispraise than to define and describe. So, what do we mean by science and scientism, and what's the difference between the two?
1: Yeah, that's actually a more difficult question than one might think, um, because there are, if you talk to philosophers of science or historians of science or people on the street, people have all sorts of different definitions. I'd say you know, just uh, sort of bootstrapping a definition. I think science, generally speaking, at least as we understand it today, modern science is sort of a rigorous uh, empirical study of the natural world, largely not exclusively because there's math and other stuff, but focusing on, you know, what's going on in in the physical processes and stuff. So really a rigorous study of the physical world in particular. Scientism uh, is sort of goes beyond that and sort of says, well, that Knowledge is really the only knowledge we can have, and so the the knowledge of the physical world and how it operates, the nuts and bolts, or the mechanistic understanding of the world, that's true knowledge. Everything else is sort of a fairy tale, and so that uh, that we should live based on that, and, and everything else, whether it be philosophy or the arts, either has to be reduced to those physical explanations, or they're irrelevant. And so, so scientism is modern science is the only real knowledge we have, true knowledge of the world. And so that's the way we ought to uh, handle things. And actually, the way things ought to be ruled is based on science.
0: Hmm. And you particularly hear this sort of thing from among the new atheists, the the four horsemen of of the apocalypse. (laughs) They're very dismissive, usually, of philosophy or pretty much anything that isn't a hard science.
1: They are. And it's really interesting because Lewis, you might think, well, he was born more than 100 years ago. But actually, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when when he grew up, you had the old scientific atheists. I mean, sort of, so they were making the exact same arguments, um, actually latching on to people like Darwin and others uh, to basically argue that, well, science has now proved we're just blind matter in motion. Therefore, everyone else has to get over it. And we need to find meaning despite that. And so, in, in some ways, and what goes around comes around. These new athe- so-called new atheists today are really uh, another incarnation of the old scientific atheist that Lewis grew up with. And that's why I actually think Lewis is so fascinating to read about science, because although certainly we've we've learned a lot more things about uh, how the world operates through science, some of these underlying metaphysical claims made in the name of science are very much similar today to what Lewis experienced.
0: Later this month, when to be speaking to Peter Williams, I'm going to talk a little bit about anti-verificationism and logical positivism, which was all the rage when Lewis was around. And it's not really called that anymore. But you definitely see those same trains of thought um, expressed in, in statements such as a religious statement is a meaningless statement.
1: And you also see the same sort of reaction. So that was on the one side of the, the the reductionism and 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 things like that, and the the extreme logical positivism. But then you had people who, say, so weren't Christians, were trying to react against that. And so you really had the equivalent of what today you'd be called postmodernism, or I don't know what the current term for it, <laughs> it keeps changing. But uh, but really, you had at the end of the nineteenth century, early twentieth century, people like Nietzsche, who certainly Lewis did know about, and who thought, well if this scientific materialist way of looking at things, if that's reality, I don't want to live in reality. So I somehow have to, through a force of will, create my own reality. And Lewis was very perceptive and also attacking that. I don't know if you've read, and you probably have since you're doing uh, this podcast, you know all things Lewis, but one of my favorite works by Lewis, almost no one has read, and it's called Dimer.
0: Uh, And
1: it is a narrative poem he wrote before he was a Christian, but after he was a materialist. And so he was going towards idealism, and he was on his journey. And many other people may have read The Pilgrim's Regress. In some ways, Dimer is The Pilgrim's Regress pre-Christian Lewis. And uh, one real interesting thing for people who love things like the Chronicles of Narnia, everyone talks about Shadowlands and things. The place where Lewis actually first wrote about that in English is actually Dimer. Shadowlands, I mean, the, the way he, uh, where he used that concept, it was not in the Chronicles of Narnia. In fact, you'll find if you read Dimer, many of the themes that Lewis wrote as a Christian prefigured or covered in this early book that almost no one has read.
0: Well, later this season, we are going to have Poetry Month and we are going to have an entire episode on Dimer. We're, uh, we're going to on each of his major poetic works, because it is very strange reading atheistic Lewis writing poetry. But we will get to that in Poetry Month.
1: Yeah, Spirits and Bondage. We may may have reference to that in today's show because it plays in Mm. a lot of the science, scientism things are in Lewis's earliest works.
0: So probably a good place to start is to talk about where Lewis addresses science and scientific topics. What are the main works where we see him talk about this?
1: Yeah, well, he actually addresses them in in almost all of his works. But certainly the main... The main works, I would say, are his Space Trilogy, especially um, That Hideous Strength, and then the accompanying book, uh, The Abolition of Man. So those are that's probably really the, the main. But then in the epilogue of Discarded Image, which also is uh, a book that a lot of people who like this haven't read and haven't read the epilogue but you find it in parts of the Chronicles of Narnia like the magician's twi- the magician's nephew sorry and uh, <laughs> even the last battle um you find it in the book Miracles it's actually really uh, central you find things in mere Christianity you find things in the Pilgrims Regress, um it's all, and let alone all of his essays if people have read his essay collections you'll find defuutiltata um Funeral of a Great Myth, and he wrote a lot of uh, essays that also dealt with this. And so I'd say, particularly at the end of the 1930s into the 40s, he was very, very interested uh, in, in these topics. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. At the moment, it's looking like next season we're going to do Out of the Silent Planet. And so I'm looking forward to discussing some of those themes which also appear in that book. Mm-hmm. But in the introduction, I mentioned that you edited a book called The Magician's Twin, uh, C.S. Lewis on Science, Scientism and Society. And before we go too much deeper, I want to talk about that title because it alludes to something which Lewis said about science and magic, namely that they were twins, which is a very odd statement when you first hear it. What does he mean?
1: Yeah, this is, so I came across this sentence in The Abolition of Man that I hadn't really focused on before, and it served as inspiration for the book that you talked about, where he does, he says, serious magic and serious science, you know, they're they're twins. And so I thought, well, what does he mean by that? Now, in the context of that comment, he had one particular meaning, which I'll get to, but I'd say in the context of all of his writings, they're three main things that he's getting at. The third thing is the one that he really talked about in The Abolition of Man. And so that was the particular context of the statement. But I think these three things overall. So one is really uh, uh, science-like magic functions for many people as a religion. And uh, that is, I mean, you see that today with the, the, the new atheists. Uh, and many people who who really do make this sort of atheistic. In fact, there's even oh, who is the guy? Um, the guy that was actually a uh, former, I think, uh, a minister who is sort of now is a minister of evolution, and and he has a book, "Thank God for Evolution." He doesn't actually believe in God, but he thinks this: we're in this evolving, uh, unguided uh, universe where it's just matter. But he thinks that you can create. Cosmic rosary beads and all—I mean, basically mimics everything about religion (laughs) in order to. But 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 he's actually a scientific atheist, and so Lewis encountered people like that, and and people like H.G. Wells uh, at the time that he uh, wrote, who really painted this picture of reality that, well, I'd say in H.G. Wells' view, deprived you of meaning. But anyway, it, it was this almost mythic creation or anti-creation story of this blind, uh, being in this blind, unguided universe. And this was people's worldview. And so I think, so on the one hand, scientists like religion, because for some people, not everyone, but for some people, they turn it into a religion. And, and for them, it excludes it, which is really ironic. And Lewis would have said it's ironic because, of course, the beginnings of modern science actually were out of a Judeo-Christian framework, uh, as Lewis himself writes about uh, in uh, Mere Christianity Elsewhere, it's because people thought that you would have laws of nature and, and ex, uh, expect regularities. But So science is religion. Science uh, actually, Lewis thought, and this is going to seem counterintuitive to a lot of people, but that science actually produced a type of credulity or a a type type of, uh, you know, where you're not skeptical, actually. Because if, as long as someone says, science says so, then our critical faculty check out the door. And he actually told an interesting story. Many people know that during World War II, he was enlisted in various things. He did broadcast talks that became mere Christianity. Another thing he did was he went on tour to Royal Air Force camps to give, I think they were hoping give some inspirational talks to these uh, these people, courageous men who were, in, in many sense, were not coming back. I mean, they were going out on bombing tours and not coming back. But one of the things he wrote about that he learned from that was that for the average Englishman at the time, many of them, their faith in religion was really a faith in science. And so, you know, that Uncritical, that if someone says something in the name of science, well, they just believe it. So they check their critical faculties at the door. And I think where he saw this sort of become almost absurd was in, say, the works of someone like Sigmund Freud, which he skewers. He actually respected Freud and and actually uh, was interested in him, especially before he was a Christian. But uh, you see in his book, The Pilgrim's Regress, there's one particular scene where the pilgrim ends up being uh, put in a jail, basically, of his own imagination. And it's really the jail of sort of reductionism, uh, Freudian and other kinds of reductionism, where you look at other people. And the reason why it's, it's so scary is you look at them and you don't actually see them. You see through them into their inner organs and blood cells and, and diseased organs. And it's just horrifying. It's a nightmare because you're not really seeing humans who they are. You're seeing just their They're material pieces. And this is sort of the the danger of materialistic reductionism, but it's sold in the name of science, so people believe it. And so, again, that's another way that science is sort of like some forms of religion, where it's just based on this blind faith. Once people hear, science says it, then I just accept it. But then the last way, which is really the way, the the last way they're similar, science and um, religion can be similar, is uh what lewis is really talking about science and magic is is really similar is what lewis is talking about in the abolition of man and that is science or applied science or technology as a quest for power you know lewis did distinguish between between there's science trying to get knowledge of the world and then there's science taking that knowledge and trying to apply it to remake the world and he was he was not anti-science at all Uh, He was very skeptical about some claims made in the name of science, and he was very skeptical about the use of science to remake the world uh, when you weren't paying attention to, say, the standards of morality or or transcendent truths, and you were just trying to reshape the world into your own thing. And so that last area of what Lewis sometimes called technocracy, sometimes actually called scientocracy, which I think is, in a way, even a better term, of taking what you learn from science and not just claiming it's the only way things you know true about the world, but that because that's true, the only people who have the right to rule are basically scientists or those who claim to be experts. And so the rule of experts in everything, uh, which Lewis really was worried about till the end of his life. And in the 1950s, he wrote a very prescient essay, I would argue, uh, called uh, Willing Slaves of the Welfare State, where he talks about this this idea that, well, if only science gives us the only knowledge, then only scientists or those speaking in the name of science should rule. That basically you give up everything (laughs) on that. If if you're going to sort of appoint the technocrats to rule with regardless to, I mean, Lewis's point is that there's more out there and that even, you know, scientists may very well be able to tell you um, how you should do something and, and what the impacts of what you're doing are on the natural world. But they can't they don't have the right to tell you what's the most valuable thing and how you rank that with other valuable goods you know, He thought that was a conversation we all ought to be part of, and someone you know from on high just doesn't have the right to say, "Well, you have to do it because I'm speaking thus Seth science
0: <laughs> <laughs> to quote Jurassic Park. They were so busy asking whether they could they didn't ask if they should.
1: yes, exactly, yeah.
0: Okay. So we've got the title of the book now. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about how this came to be? Because you've got essays from a bunch of different people on a bunch of different topics.
1: Well, with my work at Discovery Institute, uh, I'm not a scientist. I'm a social scientist or a political scientist. So my interest is on the impact of science on culture. And so there was some debate at the time people were writing things. I mean, it was, and I thought Lewis was a particularly astute observer on this. So I thought it would be helpful to bring together uh, sort of a guide to that and have people reflect on it. And over the years, both through my work on the Lewis Readers Encyclopedia and other other things, my work with the C.S. Lewis Institute, I had gained a lot of connections with people. And so I thought it would be great to uh, bring together a, a, a group for sort of an authoritative volume that explores this area that people have touched on, but not really systematically looked through all the various places that that Lewis had looked in. And then we got a small grant from a foundation to help support bringing people in because we also did uh, three documentaries tied to uh, the book. And so it was a fun project.
0: Now, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the other topics that you deal with in the book later. Um, But there was one main issue I wanted to talk a little bit about, Because I'd always heard that Tolkien was a creationist, Lewis was an evolutionist, although I'd heard mention that he grew a little bit more critical of Darwin's theory Mm -hmm. as he grew older. Uh, But having said that, I've actually never looked into it. Mm -hmm. I've noticed various references to evolution in his works, uh, but it never seemed to be directly talking about that. He was using it as as a model or saying, if Mm -hmm. this is true, then... Uh, but you have looked at all of these sources. So, from your reading of Lewis's work, what were his actual views on the theory of evolution?
1: Yeah. Well, at first, I think we need to be clear: what are we talking about uh, as evolution? Uh, because it—that's uh, another of those words that different people mean radically different things by. And you know, from everything, just generic change over time to sort of molecules, demand, undirected process. To I mean, it, and everything in between. And so depending on how you define evolution, you could say, well, Lewis was perfectly fine and thought evolution was true and great, or Lewis was a stern critic. And so it really depends on what aspect you're talking about. And so I think for for me, there are two really big claims of the modern theory of evolution. And of course, I'm compressing and there are lots of different views, but really flowing from Darwin himself and, and then his best and most articulate followers, really two big claims of the biological theory of evolution. One is that and really, the unique claim to Darwin was that that life is largely driven, and the, and the history of life is largely driven by uh, a really a, what you could call a process of accident and necessity. It's, uh, I mean, he, he used the term natural selection acting on these random, blind, you know, really undesigned variations. Uh, more modern Darwiners would say mutations. Uh, Darwin himself didn't really understand genetics, so he didn't say that. But so, one is that. Life, you and I, uh, the flowers behind me, everything is the product of, uh, was developed not through design or purpose, not a teleological uh, process that was somehow, you know, proposed by God or, or or even a platonic way of doing it, but was through an accidental process that could have been quite different and uh, just the historical contingencies brought us what we are. and And that was natural selection. So that was one key claim. On that claim, Lewis... Axel was very critical of that claim, and even before he was a Christian. And really the the defining moment for him on this that really opened his eyes was when he was in World War I, and he was wounded, and he was recovering. I think in some sense he he thought he was fortunate he was wounded because then he got to spend time in the hospital and just read up on books. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the books that he read was called Creative Evolution by Henri Bergson, who was a French Nobel laureate. Uh, French natural philosopher. And on on the one hand, this book, and we'll get, we can get into this later about emergent evolution of things. Uh, And and so it, it excited Lewis because he was talking about this life force that was so exciting. But when it came to natural selection and evolution as this accidental process, it was a skewering criticism of saying, you know, you really can't get through this fundamentally unguided process that doesn't even have Sort of like a platonic direction. Uh, You know, it can be impersonal, but there needs to be some sort of directionality. You know, just survive, in essence, survival of the fittest of the current variations won't get you very far. It may help improve certain small things, but it's not going to get dramatically new things. And this was all in the book Creative Evolution. And so it opened Lewis's eyes. And so even before he was a Christian, after he read that book, he actually talked in some of his letters and and actually, in um, I think a letter to his dad about Darwin and Spencer, Herbert Spencer, but and Darwin building their concept of evolution on on sand, basically. So before he was ever a Christian, he actually thought that natural selection really couldn't explain evolution because it was it was so unguided. So and he and he remained very critical on that. And later in life, he actually referred to Bergson's critique of of natural selection, and so through the end of his life, he ended up getting even more <laughs> skeptical when he became friends with uh, uh, the member of one of the leaders of what was known as the evolution protest movement in in England and uh, Bernard Ackworth. But so natural selection Lewis was very very critical. but then there's common ancestry, the idea that you know everything goes back to one or, or a few original common ancestors and then basically everything developed from there um. On that, Lewis, uh, I think, uh, for much of his life was more accepting, and particularly where it came to human beings. He, as a Christian, did not think that there was anything anti-Christianity to thinking that uh, humans may have evolved from lower primates. That's on a theological level. That doesn't necessarily mean that Lewis bought into it. And in fact, I would argue that the more you read his both his private writings and his later public writings, is he was actually fairly skeptical of human evolution too, especially by the time he, he died. And, and we know this through a variety of things. And so so for Lewis, if there was a, a common ancestry, you know, he would always affirm that, that Christians could accept that with some caveats. So when it comes to like humans, some of the caveats are: well, it couldn't be a Darwinian, blind, purposeless process that brought it about. Uh, one, he was actually pretty conventional in in believing that there was a historic fall of human beings, and so this is a problem. Many, and uh, you know, later we could discuss some of the varieties of theistic evolution, but but in in some forms of theistic evolution, you get the denial of a fall. It's basically the idea that humans were evil and sinful to begin with because the evolutionary process is based on selfishness and stuff. And Lewis clearly rejected that. I mean, he said that you know, you could have an idea of human evolution, but not if you reject the fall. And then there's this thing, well, did he think that humans came from one, you know, original pair or which sort of the traditional uh, Christian view, or were there many people? Was there a population? And again, I think, in like place like Mere Christianity and the problem of pain, uh, especially, he, he opened the door that, well, maybe there however many first people there were. And so he didn't think that that was where Christians should draw the line between each other. But as far as his particular view, we have a fair amount of evidence that he actually believed in a historical Adam and Eve. There was actually a, a, an academic that he had private dinner with. Uh, later in life, it was at, I think, at his home, maybe the kilns. And they were engaging in dis- a serious discussion of, well, if you had one person from history that you could meet, who would that be? Lewis's response, which according to this person who was there, they, they thought it was serious, was Adam. And then she said, oh, well, then that's going to be, you mean someone like a Neanderthal. And then he actually poked fun at the person, oh, you're an evolutionist or you're a Darwinian. So I think there's there's some fair evidence that in his own private views, he was skeptical of the idea that humans came from a population. And then at the end of life, we know from his letters with um, some of the people, particularly like Bernard Ackworth, that he he got great fun when when Lewis was alive. One of the most famous fossils showing sort of a missing link between humans and apes was the Piltdown. Fossil, which later turned out to be a fake, and it was exposed as fake while Lewis was alive, and and he took great verve. I mean, from some of his private letters, he he really enjoyed that, uh, and in fact, you can even sort of find probably his ironic sort of poking fun at that in the last battle. You know, his last chronicle of Narnia, where he has this ape that is pretending to be sort of uh, uh, various, uh, as if he's a human, but he's not really. And I mean, I, you. I think he may well be poking fun to the Piltdown thing, which was contemporaneous with him. So that's kind of a long-winded answer, but I would say that when it came to, just to, to solidify it, when it came to evolution as an unguided, process of natural selection, building new things based on these random variations. Lewis was skeptical of that even before he was a Christian. When it comes to common ancestry, Lewis was open to it, wouldn't agree, say, with some Christians today who say, well, if you don't accept uh, human evolution, that or if you do accept human evolution, you can't be a Christian. Lewis definitely did not agree with that and, and didn't want to draw a line there. Nonetheless, he was somewhat skeptical of some of the claims of common ancestry, too, especially as his life went on.
0: Now, if somebody is suspicious of or outright rejects Darwinism, what actually are the other options on the table?
1: Yeah, I mean, there, the the interesting thing is there are a lot of options, not just for Christians, but also for, for non-Christians. So Darwin was not the first person to actually come up with an idea of that, that life evolved. He was pretty earth shattering and claiming that he thought that uh, it could, the evolution or the development of life could be explained through an unguided process. That was what was really sort of unique uh, for him. But so on, say, the theistic or Christian side, you certainly have creationism, which can be defined variously. But I think in at least the American context, usually when people use the term creationism, it is uh, either young earth creationism or old earth creationism. But basically, I would say taking the Bible and, and really trying to use the Bible to understand specifically what happened in science. So, you know, the, you have a lot of debates over Genesis 1 and are the days long days or short days and trying to correlate it to the science. So it really is taking that the Bible is going to give us, if it's not a science textbook, it gives us specific directions about science. And I'd say Lewis in that term was definitely not a creationist. But that and I, I'm not I'm not trying to knock that view or, or, or not uh, – but I'm just saying that definitely wasn't where Lewis was coming from. Hmm. Um, and I say you have both young earth and old earth creationists, which differ on, on some aspects, but they both agree on, well, it's the text of the Bible that's going to guide us on how we understand natural history. Um, then you have... Uh, you know, something that Discovery Institute, where I work at, is identified with uh, intelligent design, which, uh, in in some ways, w- which you could be a creationist and support intelligent design, or or a theistic evolutionist and support intelligent design. It sort of goes; it's not quite in the same categories. Which really goes back to debates going back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, and Jews and Christians uh, about that nature is the product of design and purpose and and that not just a blind process, and that you can actually find evidence of that in nature, and that, in fact, the sorts of things we see in nature depend on, however it came about, depend on a purposive process uh, that you can actually discern. Um, so that's, that's an option. Uh, theistic evolution or evolutionary creation, or I mean, there's a lot of different t- uh, terms used, is an effort to sort of, well... I say baptize Darwin, and and depending on how you baptize Darwin, uh, in my own personal view, that may make sense or it may not make sense. Um, if it's uh, you're baptizing Darwin by saying, well, we believe in common ancestry, but we do think that it's still a purpose-filled process that God did know how it would turn out. Okay, then I, I would say actually that's very much like you know within the one of the options within intelligent design, and also I, I think you know historic Christianity. If you are some of the ones that uh, academic uh, theistic evolution proponents who actually say that, well, no, we do agree that when, when Darwin said that you don't, or, or Darwinists claim that you don't know how the history of life is going to turn out, uh, that they'll even argue that God himself doesn't know how evolution is going to turn out. He, that he created a process that was so contingent that he himself neither guided nor even knew how it was going to turn out, but he created the process. I'd say, to me, that sounds more like deistic evolution. It's hard to square that with. But again, there are a variety of views of theistic evolution. Then, you know, there are a lot of views that are non-Darwinian. So, so for example, there's a school of biologists who are largely non-theists called structuralists today. And they, the best way I'd describe them is more like sort of Neoplatonic. They might not say this, but they basically think that Darwin was wrong in thinking that an accidental process of you know, random variations acted on by survival of the fittest can get everything we see. There had to be something more than that, because based on accidental processes, you can't build fundamentally new things. But they don't go the God route or the transcendent route. They say, well, there are these deep structures just in the way reality exists that things gravitate toward. And so that's why I say it's sort of like Neoplatonic. And you have some scientists who believe this. You actually have I, I, Thomas Nagel, a very interesting philosopher of science at New York University, who's an atheist, but a non-materialist. He wrote a book um, a few years ago where he actually teases out this view himself, where he he rejects blind Darwinism, doesn't accept intelligent design, but his sort of halfway house, is sort of like this. It's that there's these deep structures, sort of a Neoplatonism, in the way the universe exists that things gravitate towards. Although he himself, to his credit, says that he doesn't even know whether this idea of this impersonal guidance, thats really not guidance, is coherent. (laughs) But but he does understand that the the blind Darwinism doesn't work. And he's he's actually honestly trying to struggle to understand, well, well, what could explain it. And so there are lots of different things on the table, and then you know sometimes one that Lewis dealt with that actually was Henri Bergson is this idea of emergent evolution, and that some you know you're not a blind materialist, so you but you don't want to say that things were were designed or led by a personal creative intelligence, so it's this emergence, this stri- this purposeful striving towards. It's a little it's a little bit muddy. And that was so Lewis later in life, although he really liked Henry Bergson when he read him, and he always was convinced by Bergson's critique of natural selection. After he became a Christian, he just thought it was it was so muddied, it, it was didn't make any sense. As he put it, really, in his view, there were two choices: either the blind materialism is true, or there's something like, you know, a creative intelligence that like God is true and to try to split the difference with a half and a half doesn't make sense um, because it just, I mean, where is the creative striving coming from? I mean, what who is doing really the is striving? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so he, he did poke at that in mere Christianity in his private letters. I mean, some of his funniest private letters to read are his critiques of Teilhard de Chardin's views near the end of his life, where he was Basically, right, you know, he publicly he wasn't doing, but he was lampooning Chardin for this type of emergence. Uh, thought he he thought that that was not a serious position.
0: If I ever write, uh, if I ever assemble a book of Lewis's letters, it will be called Sassy Lewis, because I have oh, yeah. dipped into his le- letters on occasion, and some of them are just hilarious. <laughs> now, I watched the documentaries that you mentioned earlier and I'll put some links to them in the show notes. And towards the end of one of the episodes, you cited the discarded image, and you commented that the paradigm that we hold, so the mental model that we hold about how something works, very much shapes the sorts of questions that we ask. How does our understanding of creation shape the questions that we ask about that creation?
1: Yeah, I, I think this is one of Lewis's most insightful contributions uh, to the whole sort of debate over science and scientism, and most neglected because most people, let's be honest, have not read the Discarded Image. It was, uh, I mean, it's a great book, uh, and and most people, but it was I think his last really serious completed book, fully completed book, and that was, that was published. And and you have to go all the way to the epilogue to get this, where he basically <laughs> says, you know, nature answers the questions we ask her. And so the idea is, if you're only putting on, if you've already assumed that nature is just blind matter in motion, you're only going to ask questions that that actually show that. So it's not that you're following, you know, it's not that materialists who are scientists are falsifying science, I mean, sometimes that can be the case, but it's actually, they may be very honest and, and very very sincere, But their blinders are so on that they're only asking a certain question. And so they're going to get maybe a true answer, but it's only a little piece of the puzzle. And it's only if you take the blinders off that you ask other questions that then you might end up seeing some of the other evidence that's out there. And I think a a really interesting example of that in our own lifetimes is what uh, used to be called junk DNA, that was actually embraced by everyone from Richard Dawkins on among the scientific materialists to, say, a theistic evolution proponent like Francis Collins, who in his book, The Language of God, sort of embraced this before later sort of um, bailing on it a bit. But uh, And this was the idea that, well, if life is the product of this blind accidental process uh, and it's driven... In, in, in modern Darwinism, it's driven by mutations in your DNA. That's how you get the new stuff that natural selection can act on to build new things. Well, if there's DNA, they, they found they found a problem. When they started to investigate, they found that 90% of our DNA don't code for proteins. But in a Darwinian sense, if you're not coding for proteins, then, then you're not going to get more mutations in those proteins. Therefore, nothing's going to happen. So they pretty much, because in their blinders, they thought the only reason why DNA is helpful is because it codes for proteins, because proteins can be mutated and that can drive Darwinian evolution. So therefore, it must be junk DNA. And they justified it in many senses. You know, Top scientists for decades justified this claim that, it, that non-coding protein-coding DNA, which was 90% or more of our, of our DNA, is junk. Well, you know, we should expect that because we have we're the product of this blind hit or miss uh, evolutionary process, and so we should expect all these things that didn't work over time, just like vestigial organs that don't work now, and they're, they're leftovers of this blind, purposeless process. Well, that was their assumption, and so they they kept saying it and kept saying it, and so they also then didn't look at well what. Does the non-coding DNA, might there be other things, important things, that they actually do? Because they assumed. They didn't even ask the question. Well, lo and behold, about in the early 2000s, more scientists started to look, well, let's, you know, we have research dollars. let's start looking at the, the non-protein coding DNA. And lo and behold, uh, the junk DNA, which used to be, in our own lifetimes, the consensus view of science, is no longer the consensus. There, there are still some holdouts who embrace it. But it's no longer the consensus view of science. It's not really the the biggest mainstream view. And what changed? Well, they started to actually look at what the non-protein coding DNA did, and they found out it's doing a lot of regulatory functions that may be really important and that we shouldn't just dismiss it. So I think that's a great example of how your blinders, um, you know, of what Lewis is talking about, how your underlying assumptions Dictates even what questions you're asking, and that's gonna dictate what answers you get. The answers may be true, maybe true facts, but there may be a whole set of other interesting things that of true facts that are out there that you discover if you asked the right questions.
0: Hmm. I remember hearing about junk DNA when I was at university, and it's funny because I was a computer science major. I didn't accept it. Well, I don't think, I'm not going to say that I prophesied it, but it never made sense to me because by that point I had done coding in large projects. And when you're in a large project, there's some parts of code I don't know what this is doing. I I don't know. But I don't just start deleting it. And if I view our human DNA as the source code for the human person, I'm going to assume that if something's there, it's probably there for a reason. And. That's probably just a purpose that I haven't yet discovered.
1: Yeah. No, that's and you and you don't want to mutate code willy-nilly and expect that you're going to get lots more function. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, things break when you do that. Um, yes. But this uh, this 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 idea of your mental model prompts certain kinds of questions and will exclude others actually goes a long way to explaining how science developed because as you said it evolved it evolved, <laughs> it evolved uh, within a judeo-christian uh, framework where people assumed that there was a creator uh, and a lawmaker so they therefore looked at creation and they therefore looked for the laws that the lawmaker made that the lawmaker made
1: yes and I don't want to, I mean, I, I know that the history of science is very complicated. There are lots of different views and, and certainly there was of, of key parts of science that were developed outside the Judeo-Christian sphere. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, having said that, it was something unique uh, to, to a degree. And you certainly, whether it's Sir Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, I mean, you can read the actual writings of many of the leading lights of the scientific revolution and see that that is how they thought. And and that is uh, how uh, they were inspired, you know, so mm. you're right.
0: Now, in your book, when you're talking about intelligent design, you talk about a number of arguments that Lewis puts forward. Uh, the argument for morality, Matt's going to be dealing with that later this month. The argument from reason, I'm going to be interviewing Victor mm-hmm. Rappert. Uh, but you also mention the argument from beauty and complexity. And since we don't cover those <laughs> later this month, uh, we're just sketching out roughly what those are.
1: So Lewis and the idea of intelligent design is, is really a poignant story because, of course, uh, he always early on, because of his mom's death, because of World War I and other stuff, he actually thought that one of the strongest arguments against theism was what he called the argument from undesign, pain, evil, other stuff. You know, and uh, we referenced earlier some of his poetry, Spirits and Bondage. He actually writes some very dramatic things about nature mm. that, um, um, that, that do that. But but then, as he began investigating it and delving more in, into things, he began to realize that his sort of surface atheism materialism didn't really explain key things. And and you know, uh, I'm glad you are going to be talking to Victor Rappert. Uh, say hello to him. and uh, that It's been a while since we've talked, but he's a, a great guy. We met him. I actually met him for the first time at a C.S. Lewis Institute function when I was a Uh, Still a graduate student, and uh, it was at uh, Seattle Pacific University. So, um, anyway, that, and of course, he's in The Magician's Twin. He has a Mm -hmm. a chapter in there. But, um, you know, so for the argument of morality, Lewis thought, you know, the universe is evil because all these things are happening, how the problem of pain. And then he suddenly thought, well, on what grounds do I have to object to the universe as evil unless there's some standard? And where does that standard come from? And so that sort of unraveled beauty similarly. you can have a materialist explanation of beauty, but not really as beauty. It's as instrumental to something else, and uh, and so you know, in Darwin's view, actually, Darwin wrote uh, a, a book about uh, that into what he called sexual selection. So he tried to reduce beauty to well, it's it's that which was created basically to to have sexual reproduction to you know, entice the you know the sexes to have sex and have kids and do stuff. Even for Darwin's co-founder of his theory, uh, uh, Alfred Russel Wallace, that was a bridge too far. Because so if there's this deep sort of intuition that beauty is this elevated, so sort of, it points to something more. And if you're willing to give that up, yeah, you can have a materialist view. But you Lewis, like many people, I think, wasn't willing to give it up. And and I'd go even deeper than that. A lot of the materialistic explanations for beauty end up breaking. Down and almost become absurd. They don't really even uh, and that's why Darwin's compatriot, Alfred Russell Wallace, ended up actually embracing a view more like intelligent design near the end of his life, and 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 disagreed with Darwin on that. And beauty was one of those things that, that he wrote about. So so beauty doesn't fit very well in a in a materialist mindset. It does seem to, if you want to preserve it as something real, uh, that you you need something like. Uh, design or, or transcendent sense that it points to. Um, and then on complexity, yeah, this is interesting because a lot of people who try to say that Lewis, I mean, there are a few academics out there, Michael Peterson, and others who try to say, well, Lewis was would have been anti-intelligent design. Well, to some degree, the, the the modern debates over intelligent design involving biochemistry and other stuff, I mean, that happened well after Lewis. So who knows how he would have believed it. But we do know about what he himself said about things. Um he has a number of essays um, where he actually talks about, you know, when you're having things that are functionally complex, in, in the sort of Darwinian view, the simpler becomes the more complex over time. You know, voila, sort of almost magical process. And, and they claim to it because we see everywhere around nature, you know, this is happening. You see the the ac- these are examples Lewis used, you know, the acorn becomes the oak tree, for example, or whatever. And he says, well. And, and he was actually drawing here on an argument from Boethius back in the Middle Ages, and sort of Platonic argument. Well, okay, that's true if you look at that, but where did the acorn come from? It was dropped from the oak tree. And so he actually says that really, if you really look of what we actually see and observe in both the natural and human world, uh, where you see functional complexity and, and things developing, uh, if you step back, in the story, it usually comes from um, something of even greater <laughs> complexity. And he says, even in human reproduction, you know, uh, you know, it requires two parents who are fully developed humans, you know, before you get the baby, before you get the embryo that's developing, you, know, you have these fully developed humans. And so from whom it comes from. And so he sort of flipped it on its head and argued that what we actually observe in nature and in history where we can is that things come from things that are, uh, that ultimately are as at least as complicated as it, as they are, if not more, and it, he just thought that that this sort of evolutionary thinking that sort of just imagines that these simple things just over time will just naturally they just emerge into more complexity uh, out of simplicity is not what you actually see in nature, in his view
0: it's rather like looking at the evolution of cars and seeing oh look they get more complicated in advanced fine and he but actually made that, that.
1: <laughs> yeah well, and he actually explicitly made that in i think it was in religion and rocketry or maybe it was a, another essay where he actually pointed out well people say well you have the simple rowboat and then you know a steamship or or he said and sometimes people misunderstand this i had to actually look it up you you have the um, you know wagons and other stuff and then you get the rocket he actually was talking about the first locomotive, not, not a rocket ship. I didn't really showing my uh, limited education, but, and he said, you know, simple to complex. He said, but, but actually both of them came from an even greater, a greater mind, the mind of man in that case. Mm-hmm. And so they pointed to a, a greater creative intelligence. That was really an explicit argument for intelligent design mm. that he made, that most people don't really recognize that he made it.
0: Mm. Now, obviously, people can go to the book and have a little look at those arguments in more detail. And actually, it's funny, was I was looking at the argument from beauty and really the argument from morality as well. Uh, I'm sure St. Augustine used Pythia Latin, but he basically said, uh, if if God, why why evil? But if no God, why good? <laughs> uh, but what other topics do you cover in The Magician's Twin? And who are some of the other people that contributed?
1: Oh, we have everything. One from uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Ed Larson to uh, you know Victor Ruppert, uh Jay Richards. Um, there are about ten to thirteen contributors uh, in it, so a, a lot of different essays. Uh, Michael Eshelman, who wrote a fine book called "The Restitution of Man" on, on Lewis and Scientism, um, that actually is now out in a more expanded edition that actually Discovery Institute Press uh, published on on C.S. Lewis and Scientism. Um, so there are a lot of people. I will, One thing I would like to, I'd say, in encouraging people to read the book that I think is that you won't find elsewhere that was new, both in my essays and some others, I, I was able to go back. First, I had a researcher go, and then I also went to the Wade Center. And Lewis has a lot of books on science that he actually underlined and, and wrote notes on. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to find out some of the notes and stuff that he wrote on on. Uh, Bergson's creative evolution uh, of the arguments that he found, well, read my book, read my chapter. And this is as near as I can tell. I I was happy that the Wade Center gave me permission to, and the Lewis Estate gave me permission to basically write about this. But it's some of his marginalia and and marking up of books on science that no one else really had wrote about. One other thing that was really interesting is, and this gets to the argument from Mind, which I know you're going to probably have another full episode on. But Lewis himself, in his private library, and if anyone goes to the Wade Center at Wheaton College, you can actually physically handle it, as I have, and and read it. He had a copy of Darwin's autobiography. And it's very interesting because there's a part of Darwin himself is a fascinating figure and, and is not a stick figure at all and a very thoughtful figure. Darwin himself recognized in a couple of his letters, and and, and this comes across in his autobiography, that if he really believed that mind was the product of this mindless process that didn't have mind in view, why should he trust the the results of his own mind on his own theory? And Darwin himself had these doubts. Lewis, that was a key argument that Lewis made, and it goes all the way back to uh, uh, Arthur Balfour, who is best known for the Balfour Declaration of the British uh, Prime Minister, but was also pretty much a philosopher, thinker in his own right, in a book called Theism and Humanism that Lewis listed as one of the top 10 books that that influenced his vocation in life. Um, This argument that you can't get mind from a mindless process, and that if, if evolution was just a mindless process, then that would reduce our confidence for even believing in it because it reduced the confidence for our mind. Lewis underlined that part of Darwin's autobiography. And then, of course, Lewis himself made that one of his primary arguments against sort of a a blind... Evolutionary understanding of mind. Um, so, I think so. You'll find some of those tidbits and also some extracts from some letters that Lewis wrote that have yet to be published, even in the three volume edition that Walter Hooper uh, put out before the end of his life. Uh, so, you'll find some interesting tidbits you won't find anywhere else. So, I'd, I'd encourage people to uh, read the book.
0: And we're going to be having a Patreon event for our Patreon supporters in June, where we're going to be doing a virtual tour of the Wade. So I might ask them nicely and see if they'll get out Darwin's autobiography. Uh, oh, so yeah, see that it. would
1: be wonderful. <laughs> yes, that would be special.
0: Dr. West, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hear the final call for drinks. So to wrap things up, where can people go to find out more about you and your books?
1: Uh, they can either go on Lewis to go to cslewisweb.com, that's cslewisweb.com, or about me and, and other things, discovery.org, and just type in my name, you'll you'll find something about me.
0: Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. West for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening. For our patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Joelle, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Deborah, Anonymous, Bill and Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay. Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and have fruitful, charitable discussions. And please join us next time, when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.